Empathy enables the skills that let us be the people that we are or want to be. And it enables communication, persuasion, collaboration, problem solving, ideation, forgiveness, compassion, trust. Welcome to The Change, where we share stories and inspiration from servant leaders who work to destigmatize mental health issues and increase empathy in the workplace. I'm your host, Adam Baru. We all know and can relate to the five senses, smelling, touching, tasting, seeing, and hearing. But in the words of our guest today, empathy is like one of our senses, intuitive and present, standing by whenever we need to tap into it. In my own experience, I've found this to be very true. As an empath, I have a heightened ability to feel the emotions of others, and so it's very much a core sensation in my body. And the more I've leaned into empathy, the greater my sense of self-awareness. As a business leader and CEO, I've found that my qualities as an empath have been vital to the success of my business. This has been true for how I've been able to relate to my team and also how I've been able to relate to my customers. In working with e-commerce businesses, it's pretty important for me to be able to truly understand the motivations driving my customer and also in understanding how users will interact with the web pages that we've built. Here to talk with us about empathy and how it shows up in our personal and professional lives is Rob Volpe, CEO of Ignite360. Hey Rob, welcome to The Change. Hey Adam, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. Just, um, you know, we met earlier and you know, had a lot of synergy and alignment around the topic of empathy. And let's start with, you know, your story. Just having read your book, you you talk about, you know, as a young child growing up in New York City and, and the fond memory that you do have of that um, with your grandmother and, and so on and so forth. Um, but then you moved to a small town in Indiana and then a much even smaller town. And so, you know, I guess go back there for us, if you will, and describe how these experiences shaped and informed the work that you do today. Sure. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of my Peter Parker spider bite origin story. Um, we'd moved into this smaller, small town. It was like 13,000 people uh, in Indiana and total outsiders. And within, I don't know, five or six weeks into fifth grade, one of the kids in the class decided that he should start the rumor that I was gay. And mm-hmm. that, you know, 1980, Indiana, mm-hmm. small town, Indiana. So, you know, try to think, go into the way back machine mm-hmm. to what life was like then. And I didn't even know what gay was, let alone acting on it. I mean, kids today, I think have a much, uh, greater comfort in, in kind of their own identity and, and mm-hmm. being comfortable in, in saying that. But regardless, um, that rumor spread like wildfire and that made my life a living hell for mm. quite a few years. Um, and empathy, what it, what it triggered out of me was the ability to start to use empathy to survive and to navigate yeah. the halls of the school. And as I moved into junior high and then even high school, I found that if I was able to understand the kids and like be friends with them or be friendly and listen to their stories, basically see them and hear them, then they'd be much less likely to 
jump on the bandwagon when the next rumor would get started or when the you know kid wanted to beat me up. And so if there were fewer people egging on the situation, the impact of it would be a lot less. Um, which, you know, I got to say, like to be having like as I reflect back on it now, mm-hmm. I was, that was, that's a lot of calculations for a preteen and a teenager to be constantly going through and thinking about how to navigate and survive. Um, but yeah. that's that's what was going on in my mind um, at the time. And so empathy became this and you know, got activated, I think, as a superpower. And then I continued to just be empathetic. Um you know, it's part of who I am. And I, I, I do actually love hearing people's stories and talking to people. Um, mm-hmm. I also write about during that same time, I was a newspaper boy um, for the Indianapolis Star. And I loved going and collecting the, the money that was due. And I'd get like, I'd go down rabbit holes with people and mm-hmm. go into their home and hang out for like an hour <laughs> and hear their stories. And we talk about you know, traditions and rituals and current events and whatever was going on. And I was maybe, you know, 13, 14, 15 at the time. I absolutely loved it. It was fascinating. Yeah. I remember reading in your book how like a, a what should have been like a one hour paper route was like a seven hour paper route for you. Just- oh, <laughs> the ordeal. I mean, you know, it'd be like dark and I'd finally be coming home with, with the money. And sometimes I'd only have hit three or four houses and then need to go back out the next day. Um, to finish off the rest of the the collection because it just I, I, yeah start talking to people yeah now was that like a conscious like did you consciously say hey this is this is the way I can get by like and being able to like actually use the word empathy in there or was it more just kind of like just a natural development um, for you and just you know in terms of getting older and being able to relate to other people like I think it was something that I inherently possessed and then had to rely on it more as given the situation um, and trying to figure, you know, I, I think you start to, when, as it comes to my classmates, you start to realize like, Hmm, the kids that like me or are nice to me, they're not jumping in on it or I'm not hearing rumors from them. So how do I get more people to like me or how do I, you know, make that mm-hmm. kind of work? Um, and ultimately I forget how old I was. It might've been in high school. I read Dale Carnegie's book, how to win friends and influence people. And it's all mm. about empathy. Yeah. You know, you got to listen to people and, and people like to talk about themselves. Um, and I found that that was actually very true. Um, and then when it came to the, the customers on the newspaper route, that was just a yeah, sheer curiosity and, and kind mm-hmm. of interest in, you know, other people's lives. And, you know, you're, you're getting to step into strangers homes and see how other people live. I think that's super cool and really fascinating. Yeah. In your book, you, you share a, a number of different stories, you know, in your role as a moderator, you know, with your, your marketing, you know, marketing background, right. And, uh, working with your customers going into people's homes, we're definitely going to get into a couple of those stories. I'm curious, you know, would you, do you think you would describe yourself as, were you sensitive as a child or like, and, and, you know, I guess on top of that, like, do you see a relationship between, you know, people that are highly sensitive and a heightened sense of empathy? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And so, yes, I would say that I was sensitive um, as a child and even as an adult. Um, and, um, there are people 
So I guess there's, you know, our current situation where we have a lot of people that don't have that much empathy, but then we've got people on the other end of the spectrum that are highly sensitive HSPs, highly sensitive person mm-hmm. that, and they're you know, also known as empaths where they really can feel and take on um, everything. And you have to learn how to control that. It, it's, yes. it is a gift, um, but you have to learn how to manage what you're taking in and then how it's affecting you. Um, and there's a lot of work that individuals need to do to make sure that they're not just kind of carrying everything. Um, when I first started moderating, uh, which was back 15 or so years ago, I didn't realize it, but at the time I was taking on a little bit of everybody's sort of stories and Mm -hmm. I did a, a breath healing session, um, which, you know, involved a lot of different controlled breathing exercises to help move energy through your body and release energy. And at one point I just read, had this experience where I just felt all of these stories kind of come flying out of my body, basically. Like Mm -hmm. I was um, letting go of things that I was carrying of other people. And I didn't even realize that I was carrying all of that, Mm -hmm. but needed to process it, needed to, to pass it on. Um, So yeah, there, there are, people with that beautiful gift of being truly empaths and really connecting emotionally. And then people that are disassociated with their emotions or disconnected with their emotions. And really for them, what I try to to do and, and even a lot of the focus of the book is about having cognitive empathy, mm-hmm. just being able to see the point of view of somebody else, because it is harder um, for people to get into that emotional space. And I believe what we need in our day-to-day life is a lot, just more cognitive empathy and understand where somebody's coming from, that they might be having a bad day. Yeah. Well, that's, it's a good opportunity now to, uh, to, to go there because yeah, you, you speak about cognitive empathy versus effective or emotional empathy. So if you want to just elaborate on that a little bit further, um, that I think, uh, you know, for me, the cognitive seems to be more of like something that could be taught and uh, the emotional, it's kind of more of a built-in, but I, I'm curious your perspective and how you kind of differentiated the two. Yeah, so the, the scientists have found that we're born with the ability to have empathy, um, much in the way that like a baby is born with the muscles that will enable it to walk. However, you need to have the opportunities to strengthen those muscles up, just like with a baby, where they, you know, progress to crawl and then stand and maybe scoot and then finally take steps and then run. Um, Empathy is very similar to that. It's something that we're born with, but we need to have opportunities to develop and strengthen the muscle um, so that we can actually use it. And another thing about that is that there are two different types of empathy and some neuroscientists have found that different parts of our brain light up when we're using different empathetic tools. So if we have emotional empathy or affective empathy, that's the feeling, the feeling of somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're feeling that with them. But then cognitive empathy is um, being able to see the perspective of somebody else and understanding their point of view. You're not going to be able to emotionally relate to everybody. um, And I don't think it's fair to expect us to, but you should be able to see the point of view of somebody else to listen and try to understand where they're coming from. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, and then, you know, where does 
where does sympathy come into play? Because um, it's a bit different. You and I, you know, to quote you, you you describe this. I think a, like a with or uh-huh. for. So if you want to yeah. just kind of describe how sympathy is plays in, and here. it's another thing that people get uh, sympathy and empathy confused. So sympathy is feeling for somebody. Empathy is seeing with it, you know, and the, that's the key is it's that equality. It's that eye to eye at the same level. Um, you know, a, a feeling with somebody where sympathy and, and sympathy is needed. It's not to put sympathy down, but sympathy can create power dynamics. It can create, um, Oh, I'm, I'm having pity for you. Sympathy leads into pity. Empathy will not. Empathy leads into compassion, amongst many other things. Um, so we need to have sympathy, and, and we need to receive sympathy. And that's important when we've experienced a loss or, or other situation. But there's a di- difference in the dynamic between the two. So um, empathy is what we should be using all the time, every day. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about Ignite 360. Um, and I'd, I'd love to, you know dive into some of the stories that you shared and just kind of illustrating, um, you know, getting towards the, what you described the five steps to empathy mm-hmm. and, and, you know, kind of, you know, going from these stories to each one of the the five steps, if you will. So let's start with, um, you know, step number one, um, which is the dismantling of judgment, right? Yes. Self-awareness, mindfulness, self-investigation. You just, you shared a story about this uh, teenage boy named Bailey at, I believe you had traveled to Atlanta. It was like a really hot day. You had an overnighter in the airport. Um, so you were not in your prime uh, prime situation and, you know, arriving in Atlanta. Um, and then upon arrival, you were directed to have, you know, through Bailey's mother to have the interview outside, you know, not within a nice air conditioned environment. So, right. you know, tell us about how you, or I guess why you included the story when it came to step one, dismantle judgment. Yeah. So that story is really about actually a lot of the stories in there in the book. I'm very honest about times that I failed at having empathy. And because I let one of these steps, um, you know, become a barrier for me. So mm-hmm. with Bailey, you know, it's about 17 years old. We were doing a project on chewing gum. Um, we were in Atlanta, super hot and humid because it was late June. So yuck. Um, and <laughs> throughout, there's a there's a theme, um, and kind of a running commentary from me about how much I hate humid, hot summer mm-hmm. weather. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a reason why I live in California. Um, San Francisco, uh, notably, <laughs> notably San Francisco, like no thank you to 95 and muggy. Um, mm-hmm. but that's what it was that day. And the mom sent us out to be on the, the community center at their apartment complex. And, you know, it was concrete patio tables and chair molded concrete thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we were wilting. It was like four o'clock in the afternoon and we were just wilting. It was like the peak of of the weather you could see thunderstorms brewing um and we finally and you know that was bad enough and then you know as a result of the heat and how we were all feeling bailey was mumbling through the interview like so i could barely hear him mm-hmm. and you know as many a teenager might and you're like speak up you know i really have trouble hearing you mm-hmm. um we finally noticed his parents went off to go get dinner and so they left 
And we thought, ah, this is our, we, there was a client who was intrigued mm-hmm. to get in the house as well. And we saw that as an opportunity. And Bailey had told us about some um, uh, videos, dance videos he had done that he put on YouTube. This is way before TikTok. This is like mm-hmm. 2007, 2008. So YouTube was a thing. And so he put these videos up on YouTube and we were like, oh, because we didn't have smartphones back then. So it was mm-hmm. like, oh, why don't you take us inside and you can show us the videos on your computer and we can see your room and where you hang out and you know, all the things. Sure. And he was like, okay, yeah, sure. As the parents were gone and we stepped into um, what I can only describe as a hoarder house. Um, mm-hmm. And this is before hoarders it was a TV show. Didn't understand what that was. Mm-hmm. Living room had Coca-Cola memorabilia everywhere. There was a narrow path to get through the room. It felt like every surface area was covered. Um, and then we got into what was the dining room and there were no chairs, but there was a lot of stuff, random stuff piled on top of the dining table. And then there was a, uh, a desk area mm-hmm. where his computer was. And so we were all standing there, but at the same time, I mean, there was this smell of cat and dog urine and, mm-hmm. um, and then also a, a cake um, that the mom had baked mm-hmm. and was, and, and you could see from the dining room into the kitchen and there was the yellow cake in a pan on top of the stove cooling. Um, and you're like, Oh my God, like, what is this? Like, and I literally whispered to one of the clients, like touch nothing. Um, <laughs> so it was, but at the same time, you know, we were being judgmental about Bailey's sort of surroundings and it was getting in the way of us hearing what, you know, he just wanted to show us his dance videos and he was really yeah. proud of what he had done, but we were having trouble. Judgment was getting in our way of even seeing him as a person at that point, because we were so kind of horrified by what we were standing on and in and around. Yeah. Um, you know, and then we saw the cockroaches and mm. the story just kind of continues from there. Sure. Um, but yeah, judgment was totally getting in our way. And and that's when, you know, when, as we left the home and we were in the car debriefing, we really, you know, you're just like, ew, oh my God. But you had to work to get beyond your judgment in order to go, well, let's go back to Bailey. And like, what did we hear from him? What mm-hmm. were the stories that he actually had to share about chewing gum which is why we were there in the first place and what were those insights. But, you know, it was an extreme situation where empathy eluded us. Um, and we, we, yeah, let that get the better of us. Yeah. I mean, you know, in writing about the five steps to empathy, you, you did describe how this first step dismantling judgment, it's, it's the hardest, it's the hardest to get over because, you know, we, we, we have belief systems, you know, it's, I think there's a tendency to, want to judge right but you know you you describe how really it's it is the core fundamental you know step in in reaching a state of empathy which is you have to learn how to have the self-awareness that you are judging and to you know avoid being judgmental yep exactly it's having that self-awareness that it's happening and it is um you know, first I should say there's a difference between making a judgment. Do I go down that dark alley or mm-hmm. make a decision and being judgmental? You need to make judgments, but you being judgmental is the thing that gets in your way. 
Right. Um, that's the thing to always be mindful of. And in that case, we were being judgmental. And it's just like catching yourself in the moment. Like you're about to say something, go, wait, whoa, do I need to, do I really need to say that? Yep. Where's that coming from? How do I rephrase this? How do I think about it differently? And when they can do that, it really can unlock some really great insights and moments, but you've got to be able to get over your, your judgment. Yeah. Let's, let's go into the story of Karen and the raw milk too, because that, um, I, I think even illustrates further just where, you know, judging kind of can, can be that barrier and, and kind of how you work through it to reach, you know, this, this higher self, more self-aware state. Yeah. So we were on a project, uh, fielding it in Michigan, talking to consumers that use uh, dry packaged dinners. So think, you know, hamburger helper, think Kraft macaroni and cheese, things like that. And Karen was this mom. She had six kids at home and she had um, that mentioned, you know, as we were talking about family or dinner rituals and she had some mm -hmm. really amazing shortcuts and ways she was using some of these dry dinners as a base to make something completely different or bigger for her ah, large family. Yeah. And there were really good insights that were coming out of the conversation. And then she mentioned that they also drink raw unpasteurized milk, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and that's something that, and this is, you know, gosh, 11 years or so ago, 10, 12 years ago. So it's something that was available to do in Michigan. I hadn't really heard of it before, but she starts to explain it and mm -hmm. she's like, Oh, and I've got some, do you want to, you know, try it? We just picked it up either that day or the day before or something. Um, and so we, a few of us tried it. I think one or two of the clients that were with me decided to pass. And that was a situation where they had, they, the clients had judgment about the fact that she was, buying raw milk and they didn't think that that was necessarily safe for her kids mm -hmm. um, and the right thing to do. And again, it got in their way of actually hearing the things that she had to say, the, the, the stories that she was sharing the insight. Mm. Um, and you have to overcome the judgment because yeah. it wasn't about that. You know, you don't throw, throw, everything else you know about a person out because they feed their children or they, and they themselves drink raw milk. Mm -hmm. you no, know, that's their choice. It's legal in that state. They weren't doing anything illegal. Um, so be curious about it instead, ask more questions, try to find out. Yeah. That's a great segue to, to step number two, ask good questions. So why, you know, why is it important that we ask good questions in this path towards empathy? Well, if you don't ask good questions, you're not going to get good information. Um, and then you're not going to have the information you need to understand the other person's point of view. So a few different ways that that plays out, um, asking good questions. We, we very often default to using the word why in our questioning. Why did mm -hmm. you do this? Why'd you do that? And that happens from the time you're probably three years old. Mom starts asking you, why did your dad why did you draw on the wall in crayon? Why mm -hmm. did you cut your sister's hair? You know, why did you pull the cat's tail? Like, mm -hmm. you know, why, 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 why? And then in school, same thing. You know, why didn't you do well on this? Why were you late to class? Why were you this? You know, why, why, why? 
And that continues into our work life as well. And very similar questions that we get at school. It puts you on the defensive. So if you're asking, a, if you're starting your question with the word why, you're putting somebody on the defensive right away and they're going to try to rationalize and make excuses for their behavior or, you know, excuse the the problem instead of really opening up if you ask why in a different way. So instead of why were you late with this report, maybe try, um, tell me what was going on with you when you were trying to get that report done mm. or how can I help you get the report done on time in the future, you know, and, and try to find out what is happening, but not use the word why, even though why is what you want to know, ask it in using a different word, use, you know, who, what, where, when, how, yeah. um, rephrase the question and you'll get a better quality answer. Um, also be careful not to lead as you know, in the courtroom dramas, they talk about leading the witness. Mm-hmm. Don't ask leading questions that are, you know, really just to affirm your viewpoint. You want to be very broad and exploratory with your questions. Yeah. And this, this informs us as to the title of your book, which is tell me more about that solving the empathy, empathy crisis, one conversation at a time. And so, you know, the tell me more about that, that's, very a, a great open-ended way to 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 get to the meat right of the of the conversation absolutely and and some people do um you know they're, they're they're not really sure what type of question to ask tell me more about fill in the blank mm-hmm. is just a beautiful open-ended question and it lets the person that you've asked take the conversation wherever they they need to take it based on whatever's truly going on with them right exactly that's always a good one to have in your back pocket yep so step three i think step three like as hard as dismantling judgment is step three which is actively listen i feel that uh here in the year 2022 this is probably the toughest um skill set to have especially and and i do want to kind of go into another line of questioning here too, which is around, you know, remote workforces, which are very prevalent today, mm-hmm. you know, active listening, um, here at, at my company, my consulting agency, sweet centric, I actually just had my sales team go through an active listening course because I mean, just, you know, even in selling, I mean, selling is so much, re- I guess selling so much requires good active listening skills because, you know, I think the pattern of, of, you know, that we've fallen into from time to time is feeling like we have to sell ourselves more than just letting the client talk and mm-hmm. then, you know, solving for the problem that they're based on the conversation they're having with you in the first place. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm, I guess I'm curious, like where active listening comes into empathy for you and why it's, it's so relevant to the empathy conversation. Yeah, well, and I love, I mean, empathy is so critical within the sales process as well. You know, empathy mm-hmm. is this, empathy enables the skills that let us be the people that we are or want to be. And it enables communication, persuasion, collaboration, problem solving, ideation, forgiveness, compassion, trust. So, you know, in the sales process, if you're selling to somebody, you need to understand what their problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you're selling, you know, pens to somebody, um, 
you have to understand, well, how do you use your pen? What do you, what do you like to use your pen? What's a good pen for you? You know, Mm -hmm. what sort of grip do you like it with the fuzzy nubby grip on the front? You've got to ask questions and then you have to listen to the answers. And by listening to those answers, you're going to understand who that other person is and be able to then use persuasion as to why your product might be the right fit for them. Or Mm -hmm. sometimes just say, you know what, based on what you've told me, I don't think this is the right solution. You might want to try this over here instead. Right. Um, And all of that is then building trust and confidence that you've heard them you understand what their problem is, which is, you know, and then as you explain your own kind of, well, here's why our pen is the best. And if that is legitimately the case, you'll be able to hopefully make the sale. And active listening is about being present. So it's, you know, cell phone down, laptop closed, you know, uh, obviously on a Zoom call, you need your laptop open, but really listening and paying attention and observing, um, observing body language, uh, observing what you're seeing, you know, in the background. If, if you're on a call with somebody and they've got a kid doing cartwheels behind them, take some time to ask them, like, how, how's, how's everything going? And uh, do you need to... <laughs> You yeah. need to spot that cartwheel gymnast in the background sure. <laughs> or, or what has to happen um, because we're all human. And I think that's, that's one of the things that in this era now of more remote work and in the pandemic, I think we're, we're kind of reconnecting with the fact that we are human and yeah. our humanity is that there's always more shit going on than just the work and yeah. you can't keep those two things. So compartmentalized, it's not healthy. Yeah. Um, but you've got to be present. You've got to listen. Like I, I might ask you, well, Adam, what I see on the desk behind you, there's, I can't tell if those are apples or peaches or. Ah, those are apples that have been sitting there for about 10 days. <laughs> and who, who brought the apples in? I did with the intention of eating healthier lunches. Okay. And, but you didn't eat them. No, I didn't. So tell me about that. Tell me more about that. Well, the motivation was there, but the execution was not. Um, I don't know why I haven't gotten to them yet, um, but I, they're still there because I intend to, okay. even though they may not be as, as in prime condition for eating as they were when I first bought them. Awesome. So see, now I, we could go down the trail. I could ask you, like, well, what prompted you to choose apples of all the things? Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, summer, so there's all these other fruits available. What made the apple the right choice? What kept you from eating it. What'd you have for lunch the last few days? Lots Mm -hmm. of questions I could ask, but really it all came from because I noticed that you had some fruit. I was actively listening, not just using my ears, but I was paying attention to other things that were going on. And now I've learned that, oh, Adam is working to eat healthier lunches. There's, you know, and we can connect and bond Mm -hmm. over that. I'm trying to do the same thing. Um, and we could have that conversation as well, but that's because yeah. I was actively listening. And I, I'm glad you actually touched on it's. It doesn't just involve your ears and and your hearing, but it's it's your sight and in, in looking at body language, it's observational skills and just like looking to see what is in the environment. Yeah, absolutely. And and the things that you're sensing. There's a story in the book. Um, chapters called the Ghost in the Room. Mm-hmm. There's. Uh, one situation where I was with a respondent and he had lost his nephew, 26, 27 year old nephew recently. Mm. 
um, and probably like eight weeks or so before our sit down interview. But when I asked him to introduce himself, I mean, he went right into that mm. and I could just tell, um, and I had this sense that like, Oh, we need to spend some time. And I, it could almost see like this kind of aura white haziness kind of off above him to the left as though that were his mm. nephew. So the way I interpreted it was that's right. the energy of his nephew we've got to spend some time honoring the nephew and, and finding out what that was all about and how that affected him before we got into the topic of soup, which is why we were actually there and what the interview was about. And I spent about 45 minutes um, talking with him and hearing stories about the nephew and how his death has affected him and the, the journey that he's on And the chapters is, is largely that um, story that was really moving and then how I was able to go from that into finally talking about soup, you know, and I got a lot of really great insight out of him ultimately on soup, but it was because I took the time to hear what he wanted. I put my own needs aside and sensed what he needed and then, you know, took the time to explore that with him. Yeah, because it's trust building, right? I mean, that's like empathy is kind of like a contract that you're you're engaging in with some with another person where it's a two-way street and but that you're not going to get there without building that trust and empathy skills are going to get you there better yeah absolutely so step four um integrate into understanding so tell us a little bit about you know what what this means so you've you know, you've you've dismantled your judgment. You've asked good questions. You've gotten a lot of great feedback. You've been doing your active listening, and you know, looking at body language and and really hearing, you know, what it is the person saying. And then and then this step four, integrate into understanding. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. So step four addresses um, one of the other common misconceptions about empathy, which is that if I'm going to have if I'm going to take on the point of view of somebody else that must mean that I'm going to sacrifice my own. Uh, and that is ac absolutely not the case. So the story I, I love to tell in the game I like to play, um, you know, cause Adam, Hey, it's summer. Let's go get some ice cream. Okay, great. Well, Adam, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Oh, would you like me to answer that would be yes, probably mint chocolate chip, mint chocolate chip. Okay. I tend to like vanilla or well, we'll say vanilla for the sake of argument. Um, usually I say chocolate, but I do like vanilla. I like vanilla um, and just straightforward vanilla. You like mint chocolate chip, which, you know, that's like toothpaste. You know, <laughs> like why would I eat this? Now that's me being judgmental about mm -hmm. it. And instead I want to make room in my head that, Hey, there's other ways of enjoying ice cream. There's other flavors that people like, and it's okay. And maybe I should be curious and ask you questions about what it is about mint chocolate chip that you like so much. So the, and then hopefully you would ask me the same about vanilla so that I could learn something and have more understanding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it, it's, it's accept integrating to understanding step four is about making room in your head that there are other ways to view the world and that's okay. And you need to be curious about that and accept it. Um, and you have to be careful. That's a step. I find that judgment really starts to, to come back into play mm. quite a bit. You shared a story about a 
retiree, this this woman named Amelia, and how this really helped inform your um, development of empathy. So if you would just, you know, kind of recount that story for us here and how that impacted you. Yeah, Amelia, um, one of my all-time favorite interviews that I ever had, and she talked a lot about, um, while we were interviewing, she was always doing this hand movement where she had her hands like one above the other and she would um, turn her hands around and it was like she had a ball in her hand, like a volleyball or something. Mm-hmm. And, she'd be turning and she would say when she was talking about a situation or something that had happened to her, she was like, oh, you've always got to turn it around. You've got to look at things from a different way. And this is before um, I really had as much appreciation and understanding about empathy. I knew it was important, um, but I didn't understand the mechanics of it nearly as much. Um, but she kept always doing that. And we asked her um, later on, she, she told us about how she used to be a corporate executive um, mm-hmm. and developed carpal tunnel in both of her wrists. Mm-hmm. And she had to have the surgery for the carpal tunnel. And while she was healing, the surgeon recommended that she do Tai Chi. And because the movements within Tai Chi are really good for um, that strengthening and calming mm-hmm. the mind and the body. She was resistant at first, but she finally did it and she actually fell in love with it. So much so that she started teaching inner city kids um, Tai Chi lessons and, you know, from four to 14 years old. And that was great. So I actually asked her to give us a lesson. So we moved the furniture out of the way in her mm-hmm. living room. She said yes moved the furniture out of the way in the living room and she gave us that, that moment, but it really, that whole experience opened me up to understanding empathy more and thinking about it and really started my own journey through yoga and other kind of practices um, that I've explored over the years. Um, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the everyday people Mm-hmm. on the street and, and you know celebrities are great i've got a few that i love um and would love to meet at some point but it's really the everyday people that we all have these really fascinating stories we just have to take the time to ask the questions and listen to the answers because you can find that inspiration in in the everyday and it's the people you might overlook standing in line behind you at the grocery store absolutely um okay so step five is using solution imagining um really just kind of getting into someone you know doing the work to get into someone else's point of view so elaborate on that for us yeah so that is the point where you are actually now step you've you've cleared the path you've gotten the information and now you're trying to step into somebody else's shoes you're using your solution imagination to imagine what it might be like to be them to be somebody else um, a lot of the stories in that section of the book have to do with, um, there's one story that's about immigration and what, um, you know, the chapter is called, what are you willing to sacrifice? Um, mm-hmm. I've got the opportunity to interview some immigrants up in Canada, but then the other stories in there really relate to our own, um, in the United States, our addiction to success and how success is defined. And mm-hmm. um, I got to do a couple of projects where we were exploring, you know, life with working class Americans, people that make less than $50,000 as a household income, mm-hmm. of which that's a huge, huge part of the United States. 
that a lot of us um, will overlook. Mm-hmm. You know, we describe it as flyover country or, you know, use our, our you know, elitist uh, coastal lifestyle to poo poo. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people and, and they have a right to be heard and a story to tell. And in some cases, I think have the right way to approach their life where, you know, I, I started asking people because I was hearing them talk about how happy they were to have life and work, you know, kind of separated, you know, yeah. leave your boots at the door, so to speak. And that got me thinking about my own um choices and like oh yeah because i'm going to leave this you know evening interview and debrief with the clients and go back to the hotel and order room service and keep working on other things and other projects and be up until midnight or later and they've you know they left work at work and now they're you know having their fun or you know doing tending to their family and spending time where it should be spent um and by Putting myself into their shoes, being able to use my solution imagination, it led me to ask even more questions of them and be like, well, what if they, what if they could be, um, you know, what if they could double their income? What if they could make six figures? What if they could have mm-hmm. all those things? Would they want that? Mm. And I, I asked that question. Um, and, and a lot of that is in the book and in those chapters of, you know, what are you willing to, to sacrifice? You know, it sounds also that, you know, curiosity just comes into play so strongly with this. You know, when we don't have the curiosity to to understand somebody else's kind of background and perspective, we just kind of that's when we start to be judgmental. Right. But having the curiosity gives us that, you know, ability to really think about, hmm, you know, I wonder what this is like for them. I wonder how they deal with this sort of situation. Right. And it and it unifies us when you can get to that place. Yeah. Oh, it's fundamental to empathy. You can't, you can't get to, you can't be empathetic if you're not curious first. Yeah. Um, and we, we all should be curious about the world around us and other people with our coworkers, our children, colleagues, you know, our neighbors, the clerk at the grocery store, you know, everybody, everyone around us. Yeah. I've shared this story on this podcast before, but I'll, I'm, you know, I think it's good, a good one to illustrate around empathy and, you know, I guess showing where we're not always perfect and that's okay. Right. So my wife and I used to do wedding photography. We used to be wedding photographers and we had worked with this couple. We did their engagement photos. We met with them several times. I believe we had dinner with them. Really, really liked this couple. We were super excited for their wedding. And, uh, the day of the wedding came and we showed up and the wedding planner from hell was there. I mean, just this person and I was a very established wedding photographer, so I I didn't need a wedding planner to kind of tell me, right, what I should be doing, where I should be, right? Um, So there was, you know, probably, you know, one of the the first mistake I made was feeling like, oh, what's this person telling me what to do? Like, I know where to go. Like, you know, that's obviously that was my fault in just going there and thinking that this was some sort of a, a power play. Right. But it continued um, all through the night. And it unfortunately, it really did kind of jade that experience that my wife and I had. And, mm-hmm. you know, the couple, you know, I'm sure was immune to what was going on. But uh, at the end, we were just, you know, we felt just not 
happy with the experience. It wasn't what we expected. You know, and, and a lot of times after these weddings, we would just go sit at the bar or whatever and just have a glass of wine and just kind of, you know, kind of come down from the day. Right. And so we were, we did that. We were sitting there. There was like an outdoor little fireplace area and we were just sitting there having a glass of wine and, you know, talking about how it was such a rough day. And along comes the wedding planner and she, you know, wanted to sit down with us. So we're like, okay. So, you know, we did, you know, had a little bit of small talk and then, you know, she then shared with us how her son was having open heart surgery the next day and she was sorry for, you know, she felt like she wasn't herself that day. And it really kind of struck me as, man, I, I, I really wish I didn't just go into just being angry, you know, during this whole wedding, I just let myself get kind of taken away from, you know, the feeling of like, like I felt like she didn't, like she thought we didn't know what we were doing, right? It was my own kind of like fear and insecurities that drove this when in fact, if I had done the five steps of towards empathy, you know, I might have kind of picked up that, you know, this person might have something else going on in, in their life really. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, obviously it was not a real great opportunity to dive into that during the wedding. But afterwards, when we got into that, we, we did end up having a nice conversation. And uh, so I always, I always look back. That was such a, kind of like a life lesson for me in, in trying not to be judgmental and to just really think, think about that. Like when I do encounter people that are difficult, I always, I always now take a step back, like, Hmm, I wonder what's going on in their life. Maybe they're, maybe something big's happening, you know? Yeah. It's, it's so rarely when you run into things like that, it's so rarely about you. Um, I think we, we are programmed to think that it's about us or that, you know, we've got, something that we've done wrong or it's mm -hmm. about our insecurities. Um, but if we take the time to just ask the question, like, how are you today? Um, who knows? She might've shared that with you early on. I don't know. Um, right. you know, and had you known that when you first arrived and, and, you know, had she been comfortable saying, thank you for being here. I'm, you know, I'm just going to give you a warning. My son's having open heart surgery tomorrow. So I'm a little, you know, yeah. Razzled. Um, but she was also probably wa not wanting to exude weakness herself that she might not be at the top of her game. Right. Um, but yeah, had, had all of that happen. You, so you, what you had then at the end, you had empathetic repair Yeah. because she came to you and she explained what was going on and you were able to understand and connect um, because there was an empathetic failure um, early on. Yeah. I have um, a quote from you too, because I, I, I'd like to, you know, expand on this a little bit further. Mm -hmm. Empathy isn't achieved in a day, and the skill isn't developed in a linear fashion. Mastering these skills is an iterative process, more like a loop-to-loop -loop with curly cues, making two steps forward, one step back, and that's okay. Even today, I'm nowhere near perfect. And I, you know, I think that's such an important statement that you made because, you know, the goal isn't to become perfect. The goal is to just become a better listener and a better human, right? Yeah. Nobody is perfect. Um, we're all works in progress. And I wanted, it was important for me to acknowledge that um, and stay humble yeah. uh, with everybody. So, yeah. So, you know, another, another quote that I want to um, make here from you is, you know, around, you know, kind of, the, the day and age in which we live, right? The, the 21st century. Um, 
Unfortunately, empathy skills are at an all-time low in the United States and have been since the start of the 21st century. So, you know, I, I feel this as well. I mean, there's been so much divisiveness. I really was hoping that the pandemic would be something that unifies us more. I, you know, it's in many ways, I know it has, but, you know, in, in several other areas, there's still such a, a great divide. You know, we all want the same things as people. We just want to be loved. We want to give love. We want to, the you know, our families to be healthy and happy. So why why do you think it's so hard for us to set aside our differences and and to look into what somebody else somebody else's perspective might be yeah that's the billion dollar question or that's the society saving question isn't it the you know there's so many things that have led to our current state of of empathetic failure with each other and you know so we're, we we need to step back and unravel or, or solve quite a few problems. And I think, you know, we're through globalization, technology advances and things, we're exposed to a lot more than we used to be. Um, you know, people from different cultures or, or races or ethnicities, just people that are different. Mm -hmm. um, we're interacting with each other a lot more or bumping into each other. And so that's requiring us to be more empathetic all the time. You know, mm -hmm. it's um, so, so there's a, a heightened requirement, I think, for us to be more empathetic um, or a need for us to. And then you've got, you know, um, and look, you've got reality TV and the media over the last kind of 20, 25 years mm -hmm. that have, sent these messages out around competition and that we're in competition and it's, you know, whoever can flip the table over and storm off, they win. And not everybody looks at that as the entertainment that it is intended to be, but start to look at it as that's how I'm supposed to behave or, you know, I'm supposed to win at all costs. And you have, you know, workplace ethos and culture and the way business schools have, have taught people to, um, you know, get ahead and get to the top. And so that hasn't always required or, or promoted empathy, even though empathy is so critical to success in the workplace. And then, you know, there's social media um, and the algorithm and the way that that isolates us from each other. Um you know, and just even in, in current things that are happening right now, um, you know, with the January 6th committee or the, the decision on Roe v. Wade um, and so many other issues, gun violence, mm -hmm. I'm noticing on social media, I'm really only hearing one perspective and one side of the story because of the curation of the bubble, mm. <laughs> of my bubble of the people that I like, the things that then they're seeking out, it's feeding those things back to me. Um, and it keeps me in this, this bubble. I noticed on Twitter the other day, there was a tweet from somebody that showed up in my feed and it showed up because somebody that I follow responded to it. And the tweet said 1984 called um, 
and you know it something about tyranny and dystopian future and mm-hmm. blah, 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 all these things and i looked at it i actually took a screenshot of it um because what startled me was i was like okay yeah i get that i see that personally look i mean i live in san francisco i'm a gay man it's not a hard uh, guess to think that i'm liberal and on the left mm-hmm. and so i was expecting that the person you know i was like going, oh yeah that's what the right is trying to do they're taking away all our rights they're slowing down gun legislation there's you know all of the they, they can't even accept that the election was won fair and square and they're believing in all this you know hoo-ha the fraud and ultimately i saw that the post came from uh lorena um bobert the congresswoman from mm-hmm. Colorado, who's very far on the right. And she was talking about the left. Mm. And I just thought, oh my gosh. Like she, you know, she's, we, we, we all have the same fear. Mm-hmm. We're just in our echo chambers and we have to dismantle that. We have to figure out how to get beyond it to start having the conversations to remember that we are all humans first, you know, Americans in this country. Second, we all have very similar hopes and fears and aspirations for ourselves and start to use that to find our common ground again and empathy. You have to have empathy in order to do that. Um, I'm not going to go engage the Congresswoman um, Mm -hmm. in the discussion, (laughs) but it, it really struck me that, Oh my gosh, I, I thought that she was, talking that put tweet was talking about the right it was actually talking about the left mm. and i would have trouble agreeing with that statement but it's like okay well let me understand what are the things that she's seeing that she thinks the left is doing that are making her tweet something like that yeah i mean you know speaking about gun control obviously you know a very important topic for a long time but it's you know especially today i think we're starting to see perhaps a little bit of movement but you just see that both sides for or against gun control are just entrenched on the extreme edges where, you know, they're in order to get to probably the place where it needs to be, there needs to be some listening from both sides, right? Like, right. you know, for me, and I'll also, you know, mention that I am liberal. I grew up in San Francisco and, and you know, so that's, you know, shaped me for sure. Um, and I've guilty of you know why hasn't anything been done like like you know the second amendment was built around this idea that the government is going to go like military against the people to you know impose their their will and desire but that was written in what 17 late 1700s right yeah and you know so so really would challenge myself to do and anybody you know on, on either side is like okay I mean, that's been the argument that people have been making, you know, like, I understand you don't want the government taking away your guns and just kind of reflecting on where that comes from. I mean, that's step number one is like, you know, what what's behind that, right? Like, why, why does the person think that way? And also at the same time, hoping that they would, you know, try to understand my perspective, like where I don't think, you know, guns are safe and or the answer, right? Yeah. And the, the solution is going to be in there in the middle. Yep. And I just, you know, it's a little disheartening to to be here in 2022 after so many 
you know, situations of gun violence, thinking like, why are we still not in the middle? Like, why, why are we not coming together? And empathy is the thing that I think will get us there. So why yeah. haven't we gotten there as a society with empathy yet? Uh, good question. Um, and I'll, I'll say there's a chapter in the book called fear. It's in the dismantle judgment section. And I got to go to the NRA gun show um, about 10 years ago um, with a couple of colleagues. And it was fascinating. We were doing a study on carry and conceal weapons. And, you know, one of the early questions we got was like, why do you feel the need you to carry? Like, why, why do you have to carry with you? And mm -hmm. fear is ultimately what it boiled down to. It's a scary world out there. They're not sure what's going to happen and if they're going to be able to protect themselves and their loved ones, most importantly. And so they choose to carry. And I then, after that study finished, I was back here in San Francisco and had brunch with some friends and told them about the study and they expressed their own and they're very left. Um, they expressed that they are afraid themselves about and of people with guns and they don't know what those people with guns are going to do. And yet I found in the, the research we were doing, I was, um, I was really impressed with how well, informed and well-versed and responsible the gun owners were that I met. And, you know, obviously it was at the NRA gun show and then we did some focus groups afterward, but they done the training. They understood about storing their guns, you know, in a secure way so they can't get into the wrong hands, whether it's mm -hmm. kids or, or somebody with ill intent, um, you know, how to, to properly handle a gun, how to use a gun, how not to just, you know, pop off so to speak, um, or use excessive force. There was a lot of, um, a lot of that. So I came away from it and I write about it in the chapter, like we're all at the same place. We're afraid of what might happen. And that is like at the base of Maslow's hierarchy, mm -hmm. we want to keep ourselves safe and secure and our loved ones. And that's where the conversation, I mean, really truly needs to happen. Um, mm -hmm. and it, but there, there's so much politics going on. And I think the, the secret is for the people that are looking for more gun safety legislation and gun control to acknowledge the fear. And it's not just that we're, you know, it's not just the reassurance. Like right now, what I hear is reassurance. We're not going to take your guns away. That's not what we want. Really. It's, we understand we all want to live in a safe America. And we understand that guns do play a role in keeping people safe. So we ex expect and respect that. However, we want to feel safe as well. And how do we find a common ground where, you know, background checks, age limits on guns, all the things that are, you know, people ultimately want. And how do we find middle ground on that? But it's, it's, it's kind of like, politicians have to get removed out of it because they're just making it a spectacle at this point. And it's the concerned citizens need to come together and start to have that conversation and then go to their elected officials and say, this is where we need to be. Um, but really powerful gun lobby um, that, you know, doesn't want to take away anything. The gun manufacturers, you know, while they want their guns in the right hands and used the right way, 
they need to make money. Um, you know, it's a capitalist society, so it gets really complicated. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully some steps are being taken and that those le- current legislation, as we're talking, has been proposed, that that can go through and there might be more to come. Yeah, very, very well said. And I think, you know, using empathy, you know, you, you got right to the heart of it, which is fear. And, you know, it really would just start with just recognizing each side, recognizing there's fear and, you know, acknowledging that. And then I think some solutions can come out of that. You know, hopefully politicians and and lobbyists don't get in the way, but, you know, they're there as well and they have their own interests. And so we should also try to, you know, in the spirit of empathy, try to understand, you know, their motivations and and so on and so forth. So anyway, as we wrap up here today, um, I want to, I want to make one uh, more quote, um, or read one more quote that you made. And then one last question. And again, thank you for your time being here today. In the workplace, empathy helps with collaboration among teams, improved leadership ability, understanding and relationships with employees and decision-making. The EQ, emotional intelligence, expectation of employees and leaders has increased precisely because empathy skills have declined. So the question, the final question I want to leave with you is, you know, in regards to, and this just doesn't have to be related exclusively to businesses, but you know, where, where do you see the future of leadership? Acknowledging their humanity, um, being more empathetic. And, you know, I, I get asked a lot by leaders, oh, if I'm empathetic, doesn't that mean that I'm going to be weak mm-hmm. or that I'm going to get walked all over? And no, it just means that you're taking in the point of view of your employees, whatever the constituents, your employees, your consumers, So you're going to be able to make smarter decisions. You're going to be able to communicate more effectively because as you communicate back, even if you have to make a decision that goes against what say employees want or is not going to be popular necessarily, um, Mm -hmm. you're able to communicate it in a way that acknowledges that you've heard them. And then you're able to put context around why you maybe have to make an alternate decision that's good for the business, um, but maybe not necessarily good for the employee. Or hopefully you'll be able to come to a, a solution that's a you know, the win-win for everybody. Yeah. Well, thank you again for being my guest here today, for, for taking the time to speak with me about empathy. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Adam. This has been really wonderful. Great questions. Rob Volpe is an astute observer of life and a master storyteller who brings empathy and compassion to the human experience. As CEO of Ignite360, he leads a team of insights, strategy, and creative professionals serving the world's leading brands across a range of industries. He is the author of Tell Me More About That, Solving the Empathy Crisis One Conversation at a Time. As a thought leader in the role of empathy in marketing and in the workplace, He's a contributor to Entrepreneur's Leadership Network and frequently speaks on the topic at conferences, corporations, and colleges. He's a graduate of Syracuse University's SI Newhouse School of Public Communications and lives in San Francisco with his husband and three cats. You can read more about Rob on our website, eiqmediallc.com slash the change. Our theme song and sound engineering was provided by Shane Sufridi. You can listen to more of Shane's music at www.shanesufridi.com. If you have a topic to discuss about anxiety or mental health in the workplace, or if you'd like to tell us what you think about our podcast, send me an email at thechange at eiqmediallc.com. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on The Change. 
The Change is produced and distributed by EIQ Media, LLC. Elevate your emotional IQ with podcasts and content focused on leadership, mental health, entrepreneurship, and more.